Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all. Working at Lincoln Center, it sounds very huge and elevated. And that's what it feels like. Like once you're working there, because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 412 for September 16th. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we've got a great show for you. Part two of our Nymph series. Uh, we've got Isaac Hurwitz, Executive Director of Nymph, to talk all about the thing. Uh, we were unable to work it out for the first episode like normal, but he's here now to tell you all about Nymph uh, that we've been covering. And then we got some great stuff for you. We've got The Great Unknown at Nymph uh, featuring uh, Tom Hewitt and Don Stevenson here, both Broadway Vel- Broadway veterans, so uh, hopefully that'll be exciting and the show sounds quite interesting. We've got Trails. We've also got the incredibly deaf musical written by a deaf composer. And uh, Therapy Rocks. You're going to hear audio demos from all the shows and interviews with those people. So that should be uh, quite fun. Um, Next uh, week, I believe, unless something weird happens that keeps me from it, I will be covering the NY It Awards again. You usually get a lot of great fun interviews backstage there, so I'll put that up as soon as I can after uh, doing the show. And also, just uh, for anybody who's maybe interested, I've uh, finished putting the last final vocal takes uh, for my solo album that I've been working on over the hiatus, calling my project The Michael G. Matrix. Uh, for all the wonderful people that have helped me out with it. Um, The album's going to be called Beginning at the End. Uh, If you want to find out more information on it and be kept in the loop, uh, just go to michaelgmatrix.com and sign up. I'll be giving away lots of free stuff to people to sign up. And in a couple episodes, I'll probably preview a couple things from the album, which I'm looking to drop on December 7th. So uh, it's not a theater album, but uh, it's definitely very theatrically influenced pop and rock, and I I think uh, you musical theater fans would uh, appreciate it. So anyway, with all that said, it's time to get on with the show. So let's uh, get on talking with Isaac Hurwitz. On the boards. Well, we are in the middle of our fifth year, wow, time flies, of coverage of the New York Musical Theater Festival, otherwise known as Nymph. And maybe you've been seeing the Nymphomaniac t-shirts around this year. Uh, They finally latched onto the obvious with that one. And to talk a little bit more about this year's outstanding festival, we have got executive producer and producer. Executive director and producer. Executive director and producer, Isaac Hurwitz. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, we're back again to talk about the show. Well, the festival runs... uh, September 27th through October 17th this year. Only three weeks away as we're talking right now. Yeah, it's frighteningly close. But uh, we actually start with some pre-festival events in just two weeks on the 20th. We we have a big songwriter showcase, and then um, we start our next Broadway sensation contest. Uh, auditions are this coming weekend, and then they uh, they the contest itself begins right before the festival. So it's we're there. <laughs> it's exciting. <laughs> So uh, what's special? What you got going on this year at the festival? Well, we have 
once again, we have 30 shows, great shows, um, everything from uh, autobiographical pieces to totally fictional pieces, adaptations of work. The, some of the big news this year is that um, Baz Luhrmann, the writer-director, producer of Moulin Rouge and uh, Romeo and Juliet and Australia, has come on board as our... Uh, honorary chairman for the year, and he'll be hosting our opening night and doing a master class about musical theater on stage and screen and uh, telling stories through uh, song in the 21st century. So we're really excited to have some some spokespeople who really have latched into what we're doing and want to help us spread it beyond the the diehard musical theater fan base to the world at large. So... <laughs> Well, I know uh, up till now, at least, and, and and I'm not saying that it stopped, but I'm kind of curious. Uh, every year as we've talked, the attendance has grown. And uh, did you get, you know, what are the numbers in from last year? How much did last year grow over? Well, you know, the, the tricky thing is, is that we sort of max out. Most of our shows <laughs> sell out. Last year, we hit um, record capacity. The festival sold at uh, 90% capacity. So um, that means that while during some of the matinees, we had some availability by the time the festival rolled around. Basically, all of the evening and weekend shows were completely sold out. Um, so about 40,000 people attended the festival last year, which is great. Um, we're expecting about the same this year. It's it's actually a slightly smaller festival in terms of the number of, of events, um, but we've got some larger venues this year. We're at the Duke for the first time on 42nd Street. That's um, a nice place. Yeah. It's a gorgeous theater. And um, it just so happened that, uh, you know, every year we we go to some of the same theaters, but we struggle as many, many itinerant theater companies in New York City do, making sure that we have the space to do our shows. So it just so happened that this great space was available, and um, we're happy to be there. So, you know, so we, we the, the slightly fewer shows, but some larger venues, and we've got some really popular shows. Anthony Rapp's uh, one-man show, Without You, uh, has already sold out 10 performances, and we've just added an 11th performance. Yeah, I was going to say, it actually seems like there's a couple more prominent things in the in the development cycle than usual. I also noticed that, uh, like, uh, William Hopman and, G- and Jim Wan, who Yeah, the, pretty the great unknown. Uh, you know, Bill Hopman won a Tony Award for Big River. And, and he's um, going the nymph route. And now he's going the nymph route. I mean, that, that's uh, it's interesting because uh, both Jim and, and, and Bill had shows on Broadway in the 80s. And in some ways, the, the, the dire situation of Broadway in the 80s was one of the inspiring um, uh, the ins- inspirations for, for starting Nymph in that, you know, it was really hard for unknown writers then to get their work on the stage, and we didn't want that to happen again. So we were really excited when we found their uh, their show. They actually submitted it blindly to our Next Link project. We fell in love with the work, and then only after we accepted it did we realize that we had a Tony Award winner in the bunch. So, um, you know, that's how it works. It's, it's really um, meant to be... That the Next Link project is really meant to be open to anyone. Now, surely they could have gone a more direct route on the thing, and you do have the invited projects. Do you know if there was a reason they chose the the regular blind submission on that? Well, I think this is a project that they, as writers, have been pushing for a long time, and um, so it's not as though there was a, a producer attached. Um, and they were looking for dramaturgical support as much as everything else. And, and our Next Link project is not just a way into the festival. It's a whole writer support program. So they 
were matched with a dramaturg who's been working with them since May, um, helping to develop the show. And I bet you really had to twist somebody's arm there. Yeah, that was really hard. I mean, <laughs> but the the twelve next link shows are really across the board fantastic. I'm very excited about them. Another one that um, is in that group is uh, J. Allen Zimmerman's incredibly deaf musical. Really a one-of-a-kind piece of musical theater, um, autobiographical, Jay. I'm actually going to be talking to them tomorrow. So. Well, then I'll save it for that. <laughs> but, they, I mean, I, I think that's so different from The Great Unknown. And then you've got pieces like uh, Above Hell's Kitchen and Blood Ties where you've got singer-songwriters who have devised pieces around their music and their bands that are really a powerful stories and incredibly entertaining. But having the Next Link project where they can work with the dramaturg to help shape that into a stage-worthy dramatic piece that can then be premiered at the festival is, I think, really um, a worthwhile thing for them. So that, that I'm really proud of how that program has grown over the years. Well, one thing that might actually be, I don't ever know if we've ever actually gone into detail in any interview, but a, a lot of, there's a lot of confusion when I talk to people over what the role of a dramaturg is. In fact, in you know my my hometown, one guy was talking about how he's heard it used as a verb way too much. You know, <laughs> we need to dramaturg this show. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> well, you know, so maybe you can like let our listeners know kind of more specifically what exactly a dramaturg's function is. I think it really depends on the production or what they can and, be, or know? what they can you know. And, and if you're working on a new piece or a, a new directorial vision of an established piece. Um, the way we view the dramaturgs who work with us, and they um, and they range from people who are major literary managers at theaters around the country um, to established dramaturgs, you know, uh, who have gone through programs studying this, is to be a support to the writer, um, to help them be a sounding board um, for questions of structure, questions of, uh, you know, a third eye. Is, is the show expressing what they wanted to express? What are the the goals of the piece, um, and then to sort of be a sounding board as our writers go through a very hectic process of trying to get their work up on its feet and sometimes functioning also as producers. The dramaturg, is, in our case, is really an important person who helps the writer remember that they're a writer and um, and says, okay, in this whole crazy process where you're thinking about, like, casting and who's going to, you know, how am I going to get people to my show? How do you make sure that this development process is as fruitful as it can be? What's your goal between May, when you know you're going to be in the festival, and October, when your show opens? What's accomplishable? What, what, what do you want to do to actually f- improve the show? Um, and then can be a sounding board to make sure that all the steps that get taken across that process reflect those priorities. Um, and because our writers often don't have producers, that dramaturg role is very amorphous. It's really hard, you know. These are these are just professional right-hand men and women, I think, mm-hmm. who, who know a lot about um, putting plays together, and musicals in particular. These are people who all have experience with musicals. Um, so uh, I'm trying to think. I think Mark Wood is the dramaturg for... Uh, for great unknown, I don't remember who's working with all these um, all these projects, but it's um, it's an incredibly uh, I feel incredibly privileged that these uh, these dramaturgs are willing to donate their time in the way that they do to see these works get up on their feet, um, and I know that the writers feel that way too. Um, so, so the, the 
Nymph is pretty well established. This is Nymph's seventh year, right? This is year seven. seven. Um, so it's getting pretty established. Are there any like specific new goals that you've added into the the mix this year, or or is it just more developing the the very outstanding? Things that you've been doing. Well, I think in the past year, a lot of things have come into focus for us. Um, what, you know, clarifying really what our, our long-term goals are for Nymph, um, and and making sure that it's not just a collection of thirty shows. Although we're really proud of the thirty shows, but that we want to be having an impact on the industry um, for years to come. And so, we have really beefed up our educational programming this year. That's. Uh, we have a master class with Baz Luhrmann. We have a partnership with the Commercial Theater Institute um, uh, to help match young producers with uh, emerging writers. Uh, we have a lot of new ancillary programming that I think is built around building the theater community. And then the other big thing that's new is, um, you know, this past year we brought uh, last festival we brought a show from Korea. Uh, which was called My Scary Girl. It was part of our exchange, the, a new exchange with our sister festival in uh, Daegu, South Korea. And that show was received incredibly well. And, and we, this summer, had the, the incredible fortune to do the other side of the exchange where we brought Academy from last year's show, uh, last year's festival, to Korea. We took 30 people over to Korea and did a production at their festival, which was the experience of a lifetime. Um, and both I and the head of DIMF, uh, the Daegu International Musical Festival, um, felt that this is a real um, positive exchange that is really important for writers and for producers in both of our communities. So we're continuing that exchange. We're bringing another uh, show. And, and that expansion into new audiences and new communities is something that I'm really interested in continuing to grow. Now, in the, over the past year, and one of these happened right before the last festival, but also in the past year, you've had a two pretty notable uh, successes on Broadway. Uh, we did. <laughs> we, <laughs> well, we had Next to Normal, which... Um, won, won a couple things. Won a couple things. <laughs> that, you know, b- before last year, we knew that... Before last year's festival, we knew it had won Tony Ward. Um, but... Uh, it, was it already that long? Wow, it is already yeah, that long ago. But, well, but what happened since last yeah. year's festival was it won the Pulitzer for yeah. uh, Best New Play, which... Um, it's only, I think, the ninth musical in the history of the Pulitzers to have won that. So that was, um, you know, wonderful for everyone in the many, many people who have been associated with that show over the years and who are passionate about that show. Um, but it also, I think, was really wonderful um, because that was a show that took a lot of time to get right, and it spoke to um, why these developmental presentations like Nymph are so important. Um, now, with title of show and uh, next to normal hitting in Broadway and being the first two shows to like hit the the biggest brass ring, yeah. you know, of all the thing, has that done anything to increase awareness on what you guys are doing, or made it easier on the PR front today? Oh, for sure. I mean, when I tell people, um, when I talk about the festival, and I say, oh, you know, title of show and next to normal uh, started with us, and you know, uh, they instantly go, oh, now I know what that, you know. Well, now I know that there's actual quality work there. It's great for all of the artists in this year's festival. Um, I don't think it's changed the nature of the festival itself. Um, we still are doing what we do and trying to do it better every year. Um, but it certainly has, to the world that doesn't pay attention to musical theater 24-7, it has 
uh, open their awareness to the process of developing a new show and the role that Nymph plays in that process. So that's been great. Um, no complaints about that at all. All right, and people can definitely go find out more information on all the shows and song clips and song photos clips. and you, all of it's bios. available on on the Nymph website at www.nymph.org. N Y M F. All right. Well, so. Isaac Hurwitz, try to stay healthy through this uh, hectic season. Thanks you too, Michael. And uh, thanks for coming in and and get back to uh, helping everybody see their stuff get on stage. Thank you. Okay. On the boards. In 1869, John Wesley Powell uh, set it upon a mission to map the Grand Canyon, which had never been mapped before. That, combined with a love triangle with his younger brother and his wife, makes up the basis of the new musical, The Great Unknown, written by William Hopman and uh, Jim Wan. And we have got director Don Stevenson and actor Tom Hewitt, both veterans of the Broadway stage, here to talk about their involvement with The Great Unknown, which runs from October 5th through October 16th at NIMF. How are you guys doing? Good, thank you. So thanks. far, so thanks. good. Thanks, man. You sound that... It sounds good. Yeah, it does. <laughs> the show sounds good. I want to see that. I want to see that show. <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to quick introduce yourself so people can connect the voice with the name? Go ahead, Tom. Hi, I'm, I'm Tom Hewitt. I'm playing the role of uh, Major John Wesley Powell. And I'm Don Stevenson, and I'm telling him what to do all day long, every day, <laughs> to the point of exhaustion. <laughs> All right, so I guess first things first, um, I kind of gave a brief nutshell synopsis, but do you want to tell us a little bit more about The Great Unknown? I can do that. Um, In 1869, as you said, John Wesley Powell set off to map and explore the Grand Canyon, which had never been done before. And this is a true story, a historical story of that expedition. Uh, One of the first things that drew me to the the script and to the story was obviously was uh, Bill Houtman had written the book. And Jim Wan had written the songs, and I really liked both. But uh, John Wesley Powell only had one arm. He was missing his right arm. It had been um, um, shot off in the Battle of Shiloh in the Civil War. He fought for the Union. And it just struck me about why would some guy go down uh, the Grand Canyon in a boat with his little brother with only one arm? And so I was like, why would he do that? And that intrigued me because the things that he would have to do in the boat, which would be to paddle, to climb cliffs, and to sort of hang on, he couldn't do any of those things. He was the progenitor of the X Games. Exactly right. (laughs) So uh, I thought, well, he seems a little crazy. And so immediately when I thought of that, I thought, well, I need Tom. (laughs) <laughs> to come and play to do that because, you know, if you need someone who's a little crazy and a little obsessed and dashingly handsome, yeah. there's really only one guy. Yeah, so I right. called Tom. And, of course, guy. he hung up on me when yes. he saw it was me. Well. And then I just started texting and wore him down. <laughs> so, Tom, when do you lose the arm? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be great. It's one performance. Right? We do one performance, <laughs> but it's good. It's good, right. You know, I give. I give for my craft. <laughs> and I think it's going to be worth it. Well, you know, that's one of the challenges. Like, how do you do that? You know, plus there's flashbacks, so the arm comes back. And, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's... Boom! Uh, magic! Exactly. <laughs> it yeah. does pop out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting... Uh, I, I, uh, I, I'm always really drawn to this kind of stuff. You know, these are, like Don said, this is um, a, a superhuman venture. I'm always drawn to stories and and uh, characters that are a little bit uh, superhuman. And this guy kind of is, in a way. You know, what what is it? What, what 
makes up a character that wants to do something like this. Don and I were talking the other day, and Don said, you know, I, I can't imagine doing it. It's unimaginable, the imagination and the courage that it took to, to do this. So I'm always drawn to those kinds of characters that behave in ways that I, I could never. I mean, it's, it, it, it's fun to try to imagine the kind of person that would do something like this. Well, I, I love, like, on TV, like, the survival shows where they teach you, you know, there's always the, they teach you how to survive in the wilderness, like, here's a, here's here's how to make a bow and arrow, here's right. how to make a raft, and you can eat this plant or this one will kill you, and here's how you skin a moose and, you know, live on the food and cure the hide. I'm always fascinated by all that kind of thing because I think, I need to know this. What if this happens to me? Of course, <laughs> I never leave Manhattan, so it probably won't, but in case, you know, I, I, I love that kind of thing. And so this is an adventure story and it's ultimately a survival story for the guys in the boat because they quickly lose their food and, and there's nothing down there in the canyon to shoot, to kill, to eat. There's no fish. There's no nothing. And they're basically like, you know, going to the moon and there's nothing there. And they don't know how long it's going to take. They have no idea uh, the time frame. And there's lots of tensions on the boat, obviously, with the two brothers who are in love with the same woman. There's tensions amongst the men on the boat. And uh, that kind of thing just seemed fun with, to me. And I thought what Bill and Jim had written had a nice sort of emotional messiness to it. It was all sort of a shade of gray. There was no, like, real hero. There was no real villain. And that seemed real to me, you know, uh, uh, where people, uh, I hate you, I love you in the same kind of breath, you know. And that just seemed like life to me. And I thought that, that, that the script really had that. And I told Bill early on, I said, I love the emotional messiness of what you've written. It's not pat, you know. Yeah, for any of our listeners who are unfamiliar, um, William Hopman was the book writer for uh, Big River, and he, did he? I believe he won a Tony for that. He did, did he? indeed. Yeah, he did, and uh, and Jim Wan did the music for Pump Boys and Dinettes. Right. So uh, they're accomplished guys. I don't know why they've allowed Tom and I to even read their scripts, <laughs> much less actually do it. Uh, so I, I I appreciate the fact that they're sort of handing it over to us and giving us a crack at it. Well, before we go further, um, I know they sent down a demo of a couple of the songs. Do you want to maybe talk about this first song we're going to play here? Sure. This first song is called Natural Man, and it's sung by a character, one of the guys in the boat, named Dunn. Uh, and he, uh, as it's revealed sort of in the show, he, he smells and he doesn't like to bathe. Um, I dated a girl like that once. Stop. And Yes, hold on. Oh, hold on. And she felt like it would, you know, if she, if she bathed often, it would sort of wash away her character. And so uh, the accumulation of her character. And it's called Natural Man because that's the way he likes to smell in a natural way. And so, of course, in close quarters of the boat, that can become an issue with the guys. And so it's, it's, it's a fun song, and uh, that's basically what it's about. All right, let's take a listen. Get that thing away from me. I'd rather have hold of a rattlesnake's rattle. Soap is my sworn enemy. Rub it on me. Got yourself a battle, boys. I'm a telling you back off now. I ain't not gonna cotton to your plan. It's a matter of health. If I wanna stay well, I gotta smell like a natural man. He's gotta smell, he's gotta smell, he's gotta smell like a natural man. Well, I never heard nothing about Adam and Eve. 
never taken no bath in the Garden of Eden. It's good enough for Adam, it's good enough for me. I read it in the Bible and I ain't no heathen. The boys were all made out of this clay. According to the master plan, I sprang from the sod. If I want to please God, I got to smell like a natural man. He's got a smell, he's got a smell, he's got a smell like a natural man. If I clog up all of my pores, I'll never have to go indoors. We'll never let you on that boat. If you're gonna stink like a mountain goat. I got a smell, I got a smell, I got a smell like a natural man. I tell you every follicle is downright biblical. It'd be typical of old Samson to hide when done rode by. Old Delilah giving me the eye. Get that thing away from me. Get that thing away from me. A lifetime and a day from me. A lifetime and a day from me. He's gonna die with his boots on. I'm gonna die with my boots on. If he takes them off, we'll all be gone. If I take them off, watch it, boys, till I get my three score and ten. Never coming out of these buckskins. What's a little dirt among friends? All you gotta do is stay up with. Even the major talking about a natural plan. Well, I'm a natural man. Natural, natural, natural man. A natural, natural, natural man. A natural, natural, natural man. I'm Now, uh, Tom, I was especially pleased to see that you're coming into the studio because I understand you're from my home state, Montana. That's a state? <laughs> Recently a territory. Yeah. <laughs> no, a state. Yeah, I know. There's, there's, there's uh, very few of us, you know. It's a huge in land. In the whole state. In the very... whole state. It's a huge landmass state. I always tell my, my friends, you know, I'm in, I live in Washington Heights, and I always say there's less people in all of Montana, which is the fourth largest landmass state. Yes. And there's less people in Montana than in the northern half of Manhattan. I had a graduating class of 22, <laughs> 11 Good boys, night. 11 girls. Wow. My school is a bit bigger. I, was we it, had yeah. like Great 400. Fall, yeah, Great Falls is a big town. Yeah, it's a big city. Yeah, yeah. But with both of you <laughs> sitting here, the entire state is empty. That's what I think. There's a dearth of nothing, masculinity. You're here, and That's then right. nothing there. And women alone right. in Montana. <laughs> and, and Don, I'm guessing, yes. listening to your accent, that you also do not hail from New York. I do not. I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee. I was born and raised in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So how do two guys that are, you know, not New Yorkers, not like into all the connection zone, wind up with such great careers on Broadway? Ah. <laughs> ah. Oh. For our happen? listeners who are oh like getting God. ready to pack their bags and come yeah. in. Yeah. Exactly. I know, right? Yeah. Don't oy, do oy, it. Oy. Don't do it. Oy. You know, uh, I... Uh, I always just wanted to do it. I, from when I was a kid, you know, it's the cliche of like, you know, I can do that. I saw a show in junior high and my cousin was in it and I thought, sitting there, I said, that's what I'll do. And I never, ever, I was one of the lucky people. I always knew that's what I would do. And I, I didn't have that, those moments of like, well, should I do this? Should I try that? It was always a straight course for me. And I know that uh, that's not always the case with people. So I think I'm, I've been lucky in that regard. Mm. In addition to many things, being the producers on Broadway and Dracula on Broadway. Well, that's how Tom met. and I met. <laughs> yes. we, we did uh, Dracula the musical on Broadway. And um, uh, Don, we've been together I, ever since. Ever since. He was my Renfield, <laughs> and he's never left my that's side. That's right. That's right. <laughs> 
you know, I think also for me, coming from a small town in Montana, there's a sort of a, a blessing of uh, ignorance. You know, I, I heard. The, I, I, I totally you get know, it. I, you hear the <laughs> mantra that show business is difficult. Nobody ever makes it. You yeah. hear that. And I got that, you know, but, but you don't I, grasp how you don't, gra- you don't big see it. it. Well, exactly. you always think I, that, that doesn't apply to it's me. It's not going to apply to me. I'm different. I'm going to go there and, you know, conquer the city. Right. Exactly. Well, yeah, right. Plus, you know, I say this whenever I speak to kids, I say the same thing because they all hear it. You know, it's a very difficult business. And we've just talked for you for two hours telling you how difficult it is. It doesn't matter. You hear that stuff and you're going to do it anyway. You know, That's if true. you're going to do it, you're going to do it. And nobody's going to stop you. It's a calling and you just have to go and do it. And I was especially lucky because I graduated from college in the early 80s and there was still a lot of arts money, like, you know, endowment money, and regional theaters were still huge and thriving. And almost all of them did one, if not two, classical plays in a season. And I was part, there was a mar- there was a demand for young people trained in the classics. And I got in at the very end of that and was put into the American regional theater system doing classical plays where I met young directors who you know, subsequently became famous and hired me. And so, you know, I... To put hoods over your head, shuttle you around in vans to the next... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I've, I feel blessed and fortunate and, you know... I like think that. you're right, though. I think, you know, these, these kids that, that want to do it, I mean, there, no one could have stopped me. I mean, no, no one could have talked me out of it. There no. was no way. And if you really want to do it, you're going to do it, yeah. regardless of what anybody says. Oh, it's difficult. Oh, the rejection. Oh, the pain. Oh, the suffering. You know, they don't hear any of that. They yeah. just go. And I, I was told, just like Tom, all of those things, and I just, who cares? Yeah. I won't suffer. I won't have but, any pain. Yeah, you know, and I always hated people trying to talk me out of it, you know, when I, when I was young. But, I, I, you know, I think it's important. I mean, I, I think it's important to have heard that stuff. Even if it rolls off, it does kind of prepare you. And the people who do give up because of that, well, they, were, they should have. They probably, if they were going to give up at a counselor telling them right. <laughs> not to do it, then yeah. the world was going to get a lot harder from there. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Good point. Easily derailed. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, well, before we go on, we got another song here from the demo. Uh, Want to set this one up? Yes, this one is Boatman Go. It comes towards the end of the show. And... Um, Sort of the dilemma of this character is that he is torn between the love he has for his wife and sort of the love he has for exploring. And 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 really, ultimately, the decision for him is, am I going to keep going down the river and doing this thing, or am I going to go home to this woman who I'm crazy about? And so this comes at the end of the, end of the show where he's trying to figure out uh, what decision to make. All right, let's take a listen. I fought the river, fought the river all the way down. It could have smashed us, river could have made us all drown. In the end, I had to leave it to the river. I fought the men, fought for the men too. I'd give my arm again to have known better what to do. In the end, I had to leave it to the men. River Road 
to the sounding sea. Both men go, and if you think of me, remember how I'd measure every day, and yet. Between these walls, I lost my way. Oh, if only it were not so. Boatman, go. Once upon a mountain. Stand upon the sublime Pacific shore and shallow time would be no more. River roll down. Stars when there's nothing left to say. Remember, a man can lose his way in the great unknown. This much I know. Your time now. Don't be slow, go. All right. So both of you, Broadway veterans, lots of shows under your belt, working. What brought you into a nymph show? The money. The money. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Oh, man. Money. I just backed it up and poured <coughs> it into my bank. At the risk of embarrassing Don, uh, I, I really have to say that I had a wonderful experience. You know, I've worked with Don twice as an actor, and, and have he has my utmost respect. And we, I had a great time. I love being on stage with him. But something, I had a little magical experience this summer at the Muni in St. Louis. It's a huge, huge venue. And Don, who was in the, uh, the original cast of Titanic, managed to put together a wonderful team and, and stage Titanic the Musical at at the Muni this summer, which, you know, was a rarity. It's a huge show, and it's rarely done, so I jumped at that opportunity when he called me up and asked me to do that. Now, we, it was a special experience, and everybody who's in, in that show really, share, really shares that special experience, especially for young people. They get together and go, oh, my God, you know, Don would go out of his way to say things that would, like, make a light bulb go off in your head, and he was so energetic and enthusiastic and imaginative, and I was delighted and surprised at Don's 
uh, prowess as a director, and he's he's um, uh, teamed with Liza, whose last name I forget, Gennaro, Liza Gennaro, and the two of them are are uh, really kind of a magical team. And when Don called me up and said that they were doing this thing, it was uh, the Grand Canyon, guy with no arm, you know, let's do a show in a small context. I thought I, I wanted to have that adventure with Don and Liza again, so I feel really grateful to do that. So that's, I mean, I have to say that Don's imagination and and uh, skills and talent and the way he is in a room uh, was, was the really big draw for me. God, so, I'm so there. embarrassed. I <laughs> My head is hanging uh, down in red face shame. So, Don, how did you actually get involved with the show? Did you know the, the writers? I or? didn't. I didn't. I, and I didn't even know about the historical uh, event. Um, I'm sort of ashamed to say because I'm a real history buff, you know, and the co- combining any kind of history with the theater and the acting and the directing is like, you know, exactly the kind of thing that I love. So I didn't know about it, and I didn't know about the show, uh, but a, a, a mutual friend of mine and Jim's, Ron Rains, who was in Titanic with Tom and I, we did it this summer, um, he called me and, and said that they were looking for somebody to, to, to do the show, and um, I read it and listened to it, and I liked it. And um, I said, yeah, because, as I said, it combines sort of all of my interests, uh, survival, uh, adventure, uh, history, uh, and I just – and I sort of immediately saw it come to life. You know, I could see the guys in the boat and I really liked the the love triangle and um, I thought that I – I thought I knew how to do it. It sounds like a big show with it lots does, of CGI yeah, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. You know, oh my God. How do you get this on a nymph stage? That's the trick, sense? isn't it? Um, <laughs> I, 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 it's sort of hard to explain, but I think what we'll have is, as I told everybody yesterday, it's a very abstract in the way that we do it with the staging and with the set and with the lights. So we have this very abstract take th- – on the physical production uh, and very, very realistic acting in front of that. And um, I think if if any of the shows that I've directed have anything in common, that's generally the thing that I like to do is, uh, is, is sort of put a very realistic take on something in a sort of an abstract or fragmented uh, uh, so you didn't have the whole boat on Titanic. Well, we did. We degrees. had a little bit of the boat. <laughs> we yeah. did, but it, but but you know, certainly when people come and see Titanic, they're like, you know, well, I want to see the boat sink. Does the boat sink? And and it never really does in Titanic. I mean, the the, the whole convention of Titanic is that you really almost never see the boat and that the audience is the boat. That's yeah. where the boat is. And so you see everybody come out and they're looking up at it, but they're really looking at the audience. And so this is a bit like that because we never, obviously, you know, we can't put the Grand Canyon on the nymph stage. That would be uh, silly. But I think even if we had $20 million, you, the Hilton, you could. You could. <laughs> That's a good idea. Maybe. Can we get the Hilton? No. Oh, it's going to move. It's got legs. <laughs> We're going we're to going the Hilton. To, we're going to Hilton. Yes. Spider-Man might delay it a they little bit longer, right. and they'll use we're, it for We're dinner. in there. I hear they tore down the proscenium. Maybe we could use that. Wow. But uh, even if we had $20 million, I don't think that the way to do the show, you know, is to try to put the Grand Can on the stage. You know, I think it should always be abstract. So I do it in that way. I try to make one scene sort of meld into the other and have double images going on. Um, 
and you will have to use your imagination. And that's kind of the magic of the theater for me, if I may pontificate here for a moment. Please. I love that. I love t- things where the audience is in active participation in the creation of the show. Mm-hmm. You know, like things like The Lion King. I always use this analogy. You know, you, I hang it on the walls, a bunch of like these carved, you know, plastic Delimo bobs painted with different colors. And then you put them on an actor and the actor moves in a certain way that suggests a cheetah. The audience is making the cheetah. The, up there on the thing, you're like, this is not, nothing about this says cheetah, but, you know, and then the, like, there's a hole in the stage, and the stagehands pulls this circular blue cloth through a hole, and you go, oh, my God, there's a drought. The water's drying up. The audience, that's, mm-hmm. that's the audience is making it happen, and that's, you know, that's fun. That's They're really, really part of it. That's magical. They're part of it, and I, I think that's right. I think that's the way to do, certainly, this show. I remember I took my uh, daughters to see Lion King, and when the giraffes came out, I looked at my five-year-old daughter, and her jaw dropped down, and I just saw that happen for her, you know, seeing a person in the giraffe thing making it walk, and she was spellbound, you know, and when you can do that, I think that's the greatest kick. I'm glad we got to plug the Lion King, because I hear they're not doing too well. Yeah. (laughs) They need need a help. Bless their heart. They need help. Yeah. Yeah. 101%. Yeah. Too bad. Too bad. So any parting shots you'd like to get out here about The Great Unknown? Um, Come see it. Tom Hewitt is completely naked. And <laughs> no, that's not true. That really makes it in the early He's one-armed, yeah, if you know what I mean. One-armed. And... <laughs> no, I think that it can be exciting, and I hope that they'll come see it and uh, enjoy it. Um, uh, what else? Yeah, no, that, good job, Don. Don, that's yeah? good. That was good. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, thanks so much, uh, Don Stevenson and Tom Hewitt, for stopping by. And uh, next time, when you, I'm actually going to be moving back to Montana shortly. So, um, wow. Next time you're really? back, you'll have to swing by. My mom would love to meet you. <laughs> the only yellow house on Main Street. <laughs> swing by, Victor. It's the only house on Main Street. That's only... <laughs> why it's Main Street, right? <laughs> exactly. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks. Yep. On the boards. A childhood pact to hike the Appalachian Trail is the basic subject matter for Trails, a new musical premiering at the New York Musical Theater Festival from October 8th through the 16th. And we have lyricist Jordan Mann and book writer Christy Hall here to talk about the show. How are you guys doing? We're great. How are doing you doing? Well. Good. Uh, feeling like I like got a little frog in my <coughs> voice today. I'm not sure what's <laughs> going on. but uh, we'll, <laughs> So first off, oh, um, tell us a little bit about uh, Trails. Well, um, as you said, it's about a story of two men in their early 30s, and they reunite after not speaking for 10 years to hike the Appalachian Trail together. They had made a promise um, to do it, and they decided, you know, they're kind of at a crossroads in their lives, and they decide to hike the trail and fulfill the promise. And uh, it's sort of about the emotional journey that they take, you know, both between um, the in the present and in the past, you know, to kind of try to make sense of things from their lives. Mm-hmm. So what was the uh, impetus behind the, how did this show get started in, in this history? Well, the original idea came from our composer, Jeff Thompson, and uh, apparently he a had composer a... composer had an idea for a, a book? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yes. Very, very brilliant composer. We went into the twilight. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, he, uh, um, he, tells the story of when he got the idea that he met with a friend that he hadn't seen in a long time. I believe it was a high school friend. Mm-hmm. And they hadn't spoken for a while, and they met up, and, and they 
just reconnecting. He just talks about how strange it is sometimes to reconnect with a friend and you come back and you get to know each other again as adults and um, just how interesting that can be. And they actually talked. It never happened, but they joked about hiking the entirety of the trail together and uh, what is the scope of what does actually hiking the Appalachian Trail actually mean in, in real it's life a, just it's a really big deal mm-hmm. uh, I mean people who, who haven't heard of it I mean it's incredible how I mean, I've heard people, of it but I mean it's, I mean but I don't, don't realize it's almost its own little culture of people yeah. that have done this and you hear about it, people climbing Everest right <laughs> well, well this is different in that you don't need that much in a way of like special equipment or Sherpas but it takes more than anything, it takes time. It's 2,175 miles long. The trail starts, um, stretches all the way from Georgia to Maine. So it's literally the entire eastern seaboard of the United States. But more than that, to really hike it, it takes almost six months, um, if not more. Well, I got exhausted just having to walk home to Washington Heights. And <laughs> I love it when there are no subways. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it, one of the interesting things was, as Christy said, Jeff came up with the idea, and at first we um, we were thinking, you know, how do we tell a story about two guys who are basically walking for six months? But what we also realized as we did research into people who've hiked the trail is that it's almost it's like a quest for many people. They're looking for something. You know, people who walk the whole thing do it because they have a reason. You don't just do it for the fun of it. You do it because you're looking for something in yourself, you're looking to prove something, you're looking to discover something about yourself. A lot of people can just get a fancy, you know, Corvette with the... Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, but these people are hardcore. Yeah, Yeah, so it's, I mean, people who have had it, you know, either you read accounts, people, you know, being diagnosed with cancer and they have a year to live and they decide to hike the trail or, um, you know, someone who just got a divorce or even just, you know, graduated from, you know, school and and just want to go and reconnect with nature. And so... Um, he's absolutely right. When you read accounts of people, everyone has a reason to be walking. And so um, part of the fun of this musical was discovering um, what is their reason and um, and what do they learn. And we talk a lot about um, the the musical is primarily about uh, love, loss, and friendship. And, and the trail in some ways is a metaphor for life and um, and just that journey that we all take in terms of discovering ourselves and discovering each other. All right, well, we've got a couple songs here from a demo recording. Do you want to maybe set up this first one we're going to play? Uh, sure. The first song is called Pennsylvania Nights, and it comes uh, just before the end of the first act where you have the two guys named Mike and Seth. Um, you know, they've been hiking for a while, you know, for a while, and there's still a bit of a, a disconnect between them, um, you know, because, again, they haven't really spoken in 10 years. Um, and this song is them remembering their, I guess, exploits, you know, in, from, you know, school and middle school and high school and just remembering what it was that made them friends in the first place. So it's sort of the first time we really see them emotionally connect over the past. Um, and it just, we just love it. It's one of our favorite songs from the show. So uh, it's called Pennsylvania Nights. All right, let's take a listen. Do you remember back in sixth grade, O'Malley pants me in the gym? Yes, I remember. He was an asshole, everyone was scared of him Got behind him and dropped his gym shorts The room went into shock We had the last laugh because O'Malley Forgot to wear his jock Were we those reckless kids, those manic musketeers? Whatever happened in the intervening years? Memories 
Christmas party. Oh. Don't go there. Her folks were a wall. We were drinking. Then you dared me, that stupid dare. It's you and Rita, bedroom closet. You opened up the door. And half the school saw me grab her boob. Hey, that's what friends are for. Were we that stupid then? So eager and so dense. So sure that any day the world would all make sense When getting to second base Held unrevealed delights Those hapless, horny Pennsylvania nights Do you remember the night mom went to the hospital? We spent the night reading comics and playing Nintendo. I was scared. We were both so scared. We kept faith like brothers in battle, cracking wise and laughing through the fright. I was an only child till that night. Do you remember growing older Getting stuck on this one-way track I can't remember how it happened All I know is you can't go back You spend a lifetime running to get away And now you give the world For one more night and one more day Of reckless dancing to that old familiar song Someone there who's glad to sing along What happened to that friend Who helped me hit the heights While racing like a hurricane Through distant days of teenage mania Me and you in Pennsylvania night Pennsylvania night So how long has Trails been in development now? Um, how long have you been writing it or what? It's actually come together really fast. Uh, we got the initial idea and started writing it. Well, Jeff and I actually started writing it in fall of 2008. And we did a workshop at Millican University in January of 2009. So we literally wrote the first draft in three, four months, which is very fast for us. Um, and we came out of the workshop, you know, with a lot of songs, and we kind of knew that there were some good things to the show, but we also knew what wasn't working, and we didn't know ourselves how to solve it at the time I was writing the book. And, you know, we were looking around for someone to help us with the book, and then, now how did we get introduced to you, Christy? Adult Services on Craigslist? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, yeah, they, um, so actually, uh, my dear husband was, uh, he, he's been connected with them, and he's done a lot of recordings for them. And uh, I always call him my glorified manager because he's just so quick to throw my name out there. He's just, he's my number one fan. So uh, I guess, uh, jo- I think My girlfriend throws out my name quickly, mm. but it's usually but it's- in a different uh, context. <laughs> <laughs> so I think Jeff was talking to Matt and was saying, yeah, we're looking for a book writer. And, 
And I've always wanted to write books for musicals. This is actually my first uh, book for a musical, and I, I've just been a fan of musicals my entire life, and I've always wanted to be a part of it. And that way, primarily, I'm a playwright. And um, so Matt threw my name out there, and he said, you know, she's mostly a playwright, and she, you know, so just give her a shot. And so uh, I met with Jeff and Jordan. I got to read the original draft, and I just really felt like I understood the heart of the story and and what they were wanting to do with it. And so we just, we had a little bit of a meeting there yep. mm-hmm. in Times Square at the Marriott Marquis. Eighth floor. <laughs> Eighth floor. And uh, I just kind of laid out exactly what I wanted to do with it. And and they I, they let me write on spec for them, so I went off and basically wrote a musical. They let you write on spec. <laughs> well, yeah, you have to That's like, wow. Oh, no, 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 no. You have to understand. <laughs> to me, it's a big deal. I mean, honestly, for me, um, I really, they ha- I mean, I, I really can say this. They do have more of a, a pedigree than I have, and they have far more of a connection in the city than I do. We just moved here a couple of years ago, so I really appreciated the opportunity. A lot of people look at a resume and say, uh, thanks, but no thanks. And what I did appreciate about it was, for me, I want my work to speak for itself. And for, for them for them to just let me run with it and really show them, not tell them, show them what I wanted to do, I really appreciated the opportunity because a lot of people say no based on what you've done or haven't done. And I appreciated they let my work speak for itself. And, and that's why I'm here. Well, what she's not telling you is how the thing of it is, is that her involvement really brought the show up by an order of magnitude. We sat down and she said, guys, this is where I think the show needs. And as soon as she explained what she wanted to do, how she wanted to um, adjust the show, Jeff and I, we were just like, our jaws dropped with, and we were like, oh my God, yes. It's in some, it's, you know, there were things that we never would have thought of. We would have never known how to do ourselves. And um, as soon as she explained it, we were like, that's it. You completely understand because we'd spoken with a few other people and every other person we'd spoken to had said well maybe I do this with it I do this with it and in every case we felt like no you're not understanding what we care about in this show and as soon as Christy explained what she did not only did she get what she cared what we cared about but she knew how to enhance it at a level that we never could have um, done ourselves and it's just been one of it's just been an amazing collaboration finding good book writers is insanely difficult. Um, it's a job that requires yeah, yeah. <laughs> so much skill and gets so little gratitude. And so Christy, working with her, has been an absolute pleasure. I mean, trust so me, we're the ones who are lucky. The truth is, it really is the book that makes me... I mean, you need good music, mm-hmm. but without a good book, and even if that book is not dialogue, but just really the framing, you know... A good book makes or breaks the musical. Mm. Well, Pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm putting it on you. It's oh, no, all no. your fault. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But what, what, what's funny is, I mean, we just heard Pennsylvania Nights, and it's funny, Jeff and I had written a song for that moment, which is no longer in the show. And the reason is, is because we were about to, you know, record it for a demo, and Chrissy said, you know, guys... I feel like this is still a first draft song and I feel like, you know, she explained what she felt the moment needed to be and as soon as she said it, we're like, you're absolutely right and we went and wrote Pennsylvania Nights and um, there are a couple of other places in the show where we took monologues, ideas that Christy put out. I mean, at one point, there's one song that's based almost entirely on a stage direction. Uh, So what's just been amazing is how well all of our ideas have been able to flow together. I mean, we probably, I mean, Christy, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the things we've really striven for is to make this feel like a very unified show in terms of book and music and lyrics that we're all working from the same idea and 
being on the same page about what is the show about emotionally. Well, and to complete the love fest, I, I have to say, I, you know, I, I just feel really honored to be a part of the project just because Jeff and Jordan, I've been a big fan of their work for a long time. My husband's done a lot of their cabarets and different things around the city. And I, I mean, their music um, has literally brought me to tears just sitting there when I was just an observer and, uh, and, and specifically a couple of songs from the show um, have literally brought me to tears. And uh, when they, when I had the opportunity, when they allowed me to write on spec, part of my excitement was that I already loved the music from the show, and I already really believed in the heart of the story, and 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 that's what's so nice about the collaboration. I think it's it's mutual respect on all sides, it's mutual love and adoration on all sides, and I think that when you really trust each other, when you really believe in each other's gifts, and you kind of let everyone do what they do best, um, something really special happens, and I think that. Um, my hope is that it'll really show in the work that when it comes to the music and the lyrics in the book that they're not working against each other, that they're all working together to serve the story yeah. and to serve the characters. And so it, it's really it's really become quite a little uh, maybe dysfunctional, but dysfunctional family in I, some ways, but it's still a family. <laughs> I think it's, been, it's actually been amazingly functional. Um, and we've what's also been incredibly gratifying is that we've found along the way a wonderful um, creative team um, we have um, who believe in the show as much as we do. Um, and, you know, I know everybody says, oh, I just love, you know, in a lot of cases, there's some truth to that. There is, but in this case, it, we feel like everybody who's involved with the show genuinely, honestly cares. We have, you know, an extraordinary director for NIMF, uh, Jen Bender, who's worked on so many amazing things. She's worked on The Lion King. She's um, done... She's assistant director for Avenue Q. Q uh, for Wedding Singer. And this is someone who's worked on Broadway, who's worked with some of the best directors and has done a enormous amount of work in her own right and she's come to us and said I love this show and I want to help you guys make it happen uh, a wonderful team of producers who um, have just said and have proven time and time again their passion dedication for the show and that's what we just want to that's been the gift we've been very slowly building this family of people who genuinely care about the story we're trying to tell alright well, we got one more song here um, from your demo do you want to set this one up here uh, Remind me, sorry, which one which was uh, the next one? <laughs> um, Stories in the Sky. Oh, Stories in the Sky. Um, yeah, this uh, this is actually one of those songs that I <laughs> heard at one at a couple of their concerts, and it literally brought me to tears. I, it's yeah, actually, Matt song. was the first person to ever sing it. Uh, yeah. he did it, it, it. We wrote it ultimately as a trio, but originally we had written it as a solo, and Matt was actually the first person to perform it. In fact, you'll hear Matt's voice on both of these demos. Yeah. Um, and uh, I guess the best way to, I, I mean, there are a lot of reveals in the story, and so I can't go into great depths of what this song is, but um, this song is kind of um, what, in a lot of ways, what the play, what the musical is building toward, and this is just a, um, um, a moment towards the end where um, the uh, characters are really able to um, embrace something incredibly significant that you can't know until you come <laughs> and see the show. All right, let's take a listen. Up there, there's Orion the Hunter. You can tell by the belt and the knife. He's chasing the scorpion monster. The creature that ended his life. A singular mind. 
chasing who? Hard to say. They circle each other forever. They run, but they can't get away. Turning, they turn all the stories in the sky. Orpheus playing his lyre with music to temper the gods. He thought he could win back his lover, but he miscalculated the odds. His songs could cause demons to vanish and tear mighty mountains apart, but his doubts he could never. Quite banish or turn from the love in his heart. Turning, they turn all the stories in the sky. Each chord rewards those who know. There's a time to. Just.
Jordan, Jordan, you got a tissue in there? Christy's getting my floor all wet. <laughs> all right, so Trails is uh, playing at Nymph from October 8th through the 16th. And uh, you got your own website for this as well? Uh, yes, uh, www.trailsthemusical.com. We are also on uh, Facebook. I believe it's uh, facebook.com slash trailsthemusical. And uh, just Google us. We're out there. And, of course, nymph.org slash trails. Tickets are available now. All right. So any parting shots you'd like to get out there? Uh, we just can't wait to see everybody at Nymph. Um, we'll probably be in the back, you know, wringing our hands, saying, is, is this good? Is not breathing. Like? Not, not breathing, breathing <laughs> too. Um, I, I think if I can say anything in terms of a tagline, I think, I think all I can really say is that um, uh, I think this show, what we've really seen is that sh- this show surprises people, that um, when, when people first... Um, are introduced to it, they're like, oh, yeah, a musical about two guys hiking, you know, and, and we, we make jokes about having um, having treadmills on, <laughs> on the stage and everything, you know, to keep it interesting. Mm-hmm. But but I, what I do like about the show is that I, I like it uh, when people come in thinking, oh, I'm just seeing a show about two guys hiking, and then it's much more than that. So if I can say anything is let, let trails allow uh, us the opportunity for trails to surprise you. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks so much, and best of luck as you get ready for the show and your opening on October 8th. Thank, Thank you. you so much. On the boards. Composer Jay Allen Zimmerman's uh, slow transition from being completely hearing to a state of complete deafness turned into the incredibly deaf musical, which will be uh, premiering at the New York Musical Theater Festival from September 30th through October 10th. We have actress Casey Aaron Clark here to talk about the show and share some of the music with us. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? All right. So I guess first things first, what, what's your elevator pitch? When you run into people on the elevator in 30 seconds, how do you get them interested in seeing the show? Well, I think the title is pretty striking, The Incredibly Deaf Musical. <laughs> uh, it's an autobiographical show about our composer, J. Allen Zimmerman, and um, I play his wife, Lisa, uh, who is actually one of the few sort of real characters in the show. The character, the character, A lot of the characters are representations of Jay's personality, his composing personality and his musical personality. There's Diva Jay, and there's Artsy Jane, who's like a loopy soprano, and it's really fun. It's, it's an exploration of how music is created and the process of that creation, and then Something I think that a lot of people have experienced, which is you have a particular dream for your life and then circumstances intrude on that dream. And how do you deal with that? All right. So how if he's gone deaf, how does he know you're not actually doing Wicked? <laughs> well, he is very good at reading lips. That's for sure. But um, it's it's been a really interesting process, actually. I When I came into audition for the show, we actually sang into microphones. He still can hear a, a bit. Uh, he can actually hear notes below middle C to a certain extent, although they are distorted in his hearing. Uh, and so we sang into microphones at the audition, and he watched waveforms of our voices. And then, of course, he has a wonderful team, uh, director, music director, choreographer, uh, and producers who are like, oh, yeah, she is singing the right notes. <laughs> so it was good. So what has been the process like as you go through rehearsals with this show? Is it? Um, it's been really interesting. It's it's very much an ensemble show. Um, like I said, there are sort of many representations of Jay. There's Jay, who is Jay in his current state, and then there's young Jay, who's Jay in his 20s as he first comes to New York. And then there's kid Jay, 
who is Jay growing up in Iowa as an 11-year-old who's played by a brilliant kid named Pierce, Mm -hmm. who is just fantastic. Uh, And um, it's a lot of... uh, The music is really complex rhythmically and melodically, and um, it's, it's tough stuff, but we're having fun with it. It's a lot... It's a lot of stylistic things, and it's just fun. All right, so uh, we like so we got a couple demos here from the show. Do you want to maybe talk about the first one we're going to play? Sure. Uh, New York Jam is actually uh, older. Jay refers to it as the opening number in the show. This is sort of young Jay coming to New York, experiencing. New York as a kid from Iowa, which as a kid from Illinois, I can certainly relate to uh, the overwhelming quality of New York and, and how he got started. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's take a listen. Hello, New York. Ready or not, I'm here. Landed in the city with a couple of dollars and a kitty Casio. Oh. Got a pocket full of medals and blue ribbons galore from all these places you don't know. Oh, traded in my Toyota for a frightening room in the YMCA. I know this all sounds so cliche, but here I am. Gotta do the New York jam. Gotta do the New York Spending every second making music and demos till I break into the biz. Gotta walk on in a movie and a part in a play, even audition for limit is. Hey, you powers to be, you better let me come in or I'll kick down the door. So what if it's been done before? Don't give a damn. Gotta do the New York jam. Gotta do the New York Jam with the rich and famous passing me by. Jam with the twin towers lighting up the sky. Jam with the homeless guy who took my last coin. New York is like the hottest band and I wanna join. Wrote a little ditty and I sang it in church. A pretty lady came to me. Said she really loves my music and she happens to work in a record company. So she makes a few calls and sends me to an address in a skinny new tie. I'm meeting some big music guy. Well, thank you, ma'am. Gonna do the New York jam. Gonna do the New York jam. The New York, the New York jam. So um, auditioning, you, so you, you weren't involved with this project over a period of time. You came in and auditioned for... No, I this. actually knew the producer, Jeff Cohen, from uh, a 50s review at a casino that I did years ago. <laughs> and he fortunately remembered me. Um, Who said those were dead-end gigs? You, right? n- you never know. You <laughs> wear a poodle skirt and, uh, and you sing some 50s tunes and somebody later thinks, oh, maybe she can actually act, which is great. So <laughs> that's how I got to come in and audition. 
So what are some of the other things you've been doing in New York as a, personally as an actress? Uh, well, I have done a couple of off-Broadway musicals. I did Shout, the mod musical, when I first came to New York in 2006. And then I did um, Frankenstein. We called it Old Frankenstein because we ran at the same time as mm-hmm. Young Frankenstein, also off-Broadway. Uh, and then I've kind of been in and out and around and doing regional theater. Uh, this fall, I'm actually starting rehearsal for the new national tour of Les Mis, which I'm really excited about. So this, it's great to have two shows back-to-back right now to do The Nymph. And then actually for three days, I'll be doing Les Mis rehearsal during the day and shows of the Incredibly Deaf musical at night, which is going to be rather exhausting. So uh, what's your favorite part of auditioning? Oh, gosh. Auditioning. What, what do you like about auditioning? You know what? You sort of have to think about the fact that this is just another chance to perform for a group of people. And also... The people in the room want you to be awesome. They're not waiting for you to fail. They're waiting for you to succeed. And so if you can walk in the room and realize that these people who are waiting for you to blow them away, and then you just do your show and you do your little thing, and sometimes it's 30 seconds long and sometimes it's a little longer. And, uh, yeah, but I just love to sing. I mean, grew up singing, never stopped. So now on the flip coin, what's your least favorite thing about auditions? Ooh, well... The waiting, probably. When I was non-equity, probably my very favorite part of being non-union was the fact that most of the time the callbacks took place the next day, so they had to tell you in the room whether you were called back or not. Whether, <laughs> Whereas in uh, equity auditions and union auditions, sometimes the callbacks aren't for months. And so you go in the room and you do your thing, and sometimes you feel great about it, and then you don't hear anything for a long time like, sometimes we want you to call back call, come back for what did i, I don't even remember auditioning there <laughs> no and that has happened to me i've been called literally like months later and i was like did i audition for that sh-? i guess i did audition for that show <laughs> all right before we go further uh you want to set up a second song from the current show you're in incredibly deaf musical sure this is uh talking dirty which is a very, very, very funny song in the second act. Uh, Jay goes through several career transitions as he begins losing his hearing and doubts whether he will be able to be a composer. And one of those career transitions is, I'm going to be a comedian. And so this is his stand-up comedy debut. And Talkin' Dirty kind of refers to how, as he began to lose his hearing, uh, he started hearing people say very unusual things when they were actually saying something quite normal. <laughs> so it's pretty funny. All right, let's take a listen. I'm staring at the checkout girl's big tag. Her name's Anna. Can't tell her I'm deaf when she's touching my right banana. So I flash a smile, not for a while. Pretend to hear the bleeps and blips. The total screams, a totally blank green. So I zoom in on her lips and she says, in a kind of David Lynch slow-mo close-up, Sexuality. God, I'm hot. Heart's all a flutter. Frozen in place. Brain starts to murder. Should I whip out my membership card? Tell her I'm really hard of hearing. Or would it be endearing? She said, she said, she said, she said. 683. Uh, everyone's talking dirty All the words sound kind of horny I don't know why it happens so much But it makes me feel so horribly embarrassed 
My wife and I are dining with friends from France. Marie Simona, and they're bragging how the honeymoon was so hot in Arizona. They're impressed with the whole Southwest. It's bigger than they realized. Oh, the desert is huge, and the mountains are huge, and all the stuff is supersized. So Marie says, in a very passionate, guttural accent, on the store we have a huge sex. God, I'm hot, heart's all a flutter, frozen in place, brain starts to mutter, should I say I'm excited uh, for you? Offer to celebrate with a four-way fondue? He said, he said, he said, he said, ow! My wife pokes me. They went to Arizona and had huge steaks. Oh, huge steaks! Everyone's talking dirty, all the words sound kind of horny. I don't know why it happens so much. What am I, some kind of horrendous person? So I decided to give up all oral uh, communication. Discovering hands can help me better master uh, this uh, situation. With sign language, you can say yes, and I'll think, mm-hmm. With sign language, you can say no, and I'll think, no way. So I'm sitting in class learning how to sign. All the words are easy, and everything is fine. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Then the teacher signs hungry, and the class signs hungry. The teacher signs lunch, and the class signs lunch. You gotta tell the teacher, put them together, and makes hungry for lunch. Let me see you go hungry for lunch. Come on now, hungry for lunch. You can do it right, hungry for lunch. Uh-huh, but I go. Because I'm so excited. Oh. And the teacher stops me with a big, no, hungry lunch. You said horny lesbian. Lesbian? Help me out here, folks. Everyone's talking dirty. All the words I'm kind of pouring me. I don't know why it happens so much, but doesn't it make you feel? <laughs> Everyone talking dirty. All the words I'm kind of pouring me. I don't know why it happens so much, but it sure makes me feel hungry for lunch. Well, I give up, but I swear I'm really not uh, mentally unstable. I'm just a nice guy who needs to come with the warning label. If we're ever gonna talk without a whole lot of shock, have a nice conversation and help me avoid litigation. Please stay on high alert. Imagine I'm wearing a red T-shirt that says, in government-approved block letters, warning, deaf and dirty-minded. Well, along those lines, as a, you know, as a composer, you know, myself, I like, you know, losing my hearing would be like the worst nightmare for me. Has, uh, yeah. has Jay talked with, with the cast about the realities of what he's gone through and how does he keep composing when he, I mean, I know Beethoven was, you know, deaf and yeah, like, it's, but how do I, 
It's been it's been so fascinating as as bits and pieces of this keep coming out in the rehearsal process. Yesterday we were talking with um, the gentleman who plays uh, older Jay, Paul Amadeo. Um, There's a scene in the show where he grabs his ear as if he's in pain. And uh, Paul was like, so what does it feel like when your ears hurt? And Jay said, well, sometimes it's like somebody shoving an ice pick in my ear, and sometimes it's like a low buzz, and we're all kind of like, oh, my God. So he, it's been a really interesting transition for him. And, uh, but, but what's brilliant about it is, is how he's figured out his own unique process, how he's figured out that he can hear in a certain range, and he actually can still sing beautifully on pitch, which is pretty amazing because he bangs out the note on the low end, and then he's able to translate it into the correct octave. So he's imagining these notes, essentially, as he's composing on the high end, but he pulls from classical idioms, and he pulls from all these different styles, and, and what he comes up with is really lovely. All right. So uh, the Incredibly Deaf Musical is playing from September 30th through October 10th. Uh, People can find out all the specific dates and festival times at the nymph.org website. Also, I understand there's a a site just for this show as well. Yes, there is. Uh, www.deafmusical.com. All right. Well, Casey, Aaron Clark, uh, thanks for coming down and talking about the show. Best of luck with the run, and uh, best of luck. Maybe some of our listeners will catch you on your uh, tour of Les Mis as well. Well, come down to Paper Mill Playhouse. That's where we start. So. <laughs> All right. Thank thanks you. very much. On the boards. Are there any differences between modern relationships and relationships in uh, past generations? That's one of the many uh, areas that Therapy Rocks uh, addresses in the new show at the Nymph Festival from the 27th of September through the 6th of October. We have got book music and lyric writer Karen Bishko here along with musical director Boko Suzuki here to talk about the show and, uh, and relationships with therapists. How are you guys doing? Great, Good, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> well, first things first, uh, you know, kind of your elevator pitch. Tell us a little bit about uh, Therapy Rocks. Um, therapy Rocks is the story of a, a single girl in, in therapy in New York. And uh, she's trying to work out why her love life is gone squiffy and it's not working out. And she wants to have babies and she wants to get married and have a happy relationship, but it's just not happening. Um, She's also a songwriter, so she's trying to get her music career off the ground. So she sings the therapist the stories of her dates and love lives. And, uh, yeah. Does it connect to the fact that she's a songwriter? Is maybe her problem in finding relationships? No, but it should. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, what was the impetus behind the the show here? Um, Well, all of my songs, they were all written before the, the story. And it just... Everyone always said all along how theatrical my my pop songs were, so I decided to thread them into a story, and they were a story really because they're it's it's the story of my life. That all the songs are, are true and autobiographical, so it sort of seemed the ob- obvious thing to do in the end to sew them all together into a plot. And I think one of the interesting things uh, is, is that it's kind of a new animal in that it's not a jukebox musical, but they were existing pop songs. But because Karen's one of the book writers, it's very personal, and uh, it really does tell a story. So how did you get involved in this as a musical director? Well, 
It's actually kind of a funny story. <laughs> we had a director on board who's uh, an old friend, and he asked me to come on board. Um, and he said, look, this is something I'm doing. You know, go to the website, listen to some of the songs. And as soon as I heard the first song, I loved the music. So I knew I wanted to be on board. And then things happened, as they do, and this director went by the wayside. And now we have a wonderful new director named Tom Caruso, who's in charge of the show. But I'm still here, which I'm very happy about, because I, I love Karen's so music. <laughs> <clears throat> so what has the process been? How long has it been for you to turn your pop songs into a musical? A long time. A long time. I um, I started writing songs late. Uh, and so when I first met my manager in London, my manager, Paul Berger, he didn't quite know what to do with me because of my age. I'm... 80 now, and I'm, so I'm in my 30s. And, um, you don't look a day over 60. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so immediately he suggested that I, that I find a vehicle for the song. So that was something that happened a long, a, a long time ago, but it, it's kind of had different incarnations and more recently turned into a musical. And uh, I came to New York about a year and a half ago just decided this is what I was going to do and I wanted to get it on the stage here. But it's a long, difficult process. I mean, I, yeah, I can't pretend. You have to push and push. But we're, we're getting there. It's great. It's like childbirth. Definitely really. feels like that. Yeah. Well, I don't know, actually, but, <laughs> but I'm, I'm having a baby of some sort here. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, before we continue, uh, we got a song here from uh, the demo for the show. Do you want to set up this first song, how it fits in? with? So this first song is about um, a date that I went on and the guy didn't turn up on time. And it really, the story behind it is how sometimes you overreact in situations because of the past. So the truth was that this guy didn't turn up for a really good reason, a real reason. He wasn't lying. But because, because of my letdowns in the past, I just presumed he was just another guy lying or, you know. So it's all about how sometimes we overreact because of our past experiences. All right, let's take a listen. Please make a chick flick tonight No more horror movies Give me your happy ending I want Hollywood I'm so My jeans are a little bit tight I have a cold and my nose is red and sore But I won't care when I go knocking on heaven's door This one is different, he's spiritual and pure I can see us together on tour They say he's special and caring and wise It's so long since I've met someone who's actually nice They say he's nice
Okay, so note to self, if I'm single again, I will show up on time on a date. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you will. <laughs> so what have been the challenges recently as you head into the uh, rehearsal process and get ready to mount your show? Oh, there are many, many challenges. Um, there's uh, getting the score in, in a shape that we could actually perform it on stage, and then there's, there's many issues within, with getting the book in, in a form that we can perform it on stage. Um, but it's all part of the process. And because we change directors midstream, of course, that slowed down the process as well. Um, and it is a challenge because um, it's not a traditional musical in terms of a book and songs that are written w around the book because they're existing pop songs. Um, but because Karen's songs are so theatrical and they do tell such a compelling story, it, it does make the process a little easier. So I understand you had to like do a, a little bit of trimming on your show recently. <laughs> well, a little bit, like forty minutes off Act One. But you know, I always think it's far, far better to be in a position where you have too much great material and you're cutting stuff that people go, "No, I love that song so much," rather than not having enough good stuff. That is so much harder. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you said. Uh, you got the cast in place and everything. Anybody you want to kind of single out in terms of? Well, uh, all five of them, really. The yeah, that we've got a cast of five, and they are amazing. We did a run through yesterday of the the first act, and I. It was pretty emotional for me to hear talented people like that singing my songs. I've I've never had that before. They really are. They're incredible. they're amazing. We have Rachel Stern that people probably know from Shrek. We have Dee Rossioli from. Uh, well, people know her, of course, as Alphaba from Wicked. She's played on Broadway. Uh, we have Ali Schultz. We have Adam Halpin. We have Josh Davis. And they're all just top-notch talent. And yeah. they're so good for the material. We really, as well, in the casting process, we, we, we wanted rocky voices and, you know, 
it was a lot to do with the their singing. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that really sets the show apart is that it's not pretend musical theater pop. It's it's real, the honest to goodness thing. And we got five voices that really do that justice. Yeah. Even, even given that, the fact that these songs were existing, was there any work that had to be done or anything you were un, unready to deal with in terms of turning these songs that were on, you know, recording on or on performance live with you onto a stage for a show? Yes. Absolutely. Lots. We've done lots. Mm. One of the main things is, which you'll hear from the last song, a lot, um, they well, had to be Americanized. Set, maybe set this up at the same time as, they, as you... Um, well, they, they had to be Americanized. A lot of the lyrics were quite British. Um, and that, that was kind of our our role to say, well, Karen, we don't really say bloody in this country, so maybe bloody should... is friggin' now. Mm. I've, there's all these new new words, and there's lots of that. And and the very difficult thing for Karen is that many times we'd come to her uh, because as a pop songwriter, she's writing lyrics in in the true pop style where it's a lot of imagery, and we'd come to her and say, well, we need this to be very specific for this character, and that's an extremely hard thing to do, to take an existing lyric and make that work specifically in, in terms of the storytelling for musical theater, and I think she's done it wonderfully. I really do. All right, well, you want to set up this next song we're going to play here? This is um, Unfertilized. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, um... This song, one day I was in London and um, I bumped into this girl I sort of vaguely knew and she was saying she's 42 and she actually said she didn't have a a boyfriend in six months. She was going to go to a sperm bank and have a baby that way. And I was really shocked, actually. She she was very attractive, very successful. And so I went home and wrote a song about it. (laughs) (laughs) It's called Unfertilized. All right, let's take a listen. Some sperm and a spoon Can be better than a hetero husband She may be 42 But nobody's given her a nice diamond Running every day Working her bollocks off in the city The years keep rushing Golden's not looking too pretty And if it weren't for the club She'd be very happy Our rich and cultured life Tick and bloody touch She can't believe this She won't compromise Notting Hill's no Mansfield Park She doesn't come with a family dowry Cuts her hair at Nikki Clark. She can afford only or a Larry. Some sperm and a spoon. Well, at least it can't be unfaithful if she's still single in June. She's going fishing in a scary deep gene pool. And she's a brave, brave girl. Not what she had planned Not what she expected Not what she had dreamed The only thing she wants She can't understand
So again, uh, Therapy Rocks starts the 27th of September, runs through the 6th of October at the moment. I understand you've already got like four shows already sold out. So. That's right, yeah. I'm actually getting worried my friends aren't going to be able to come see it. Me too. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people can go to the Nymph website to get more information on how to get tickets. Uh, any other parting shots you want to get out of the show before we wrap up here? <laughs> come see Therapy Rocks. It rocks. <laughs> it does. All right. Well, thanks so much, Karen Bishko and Boko Suzuki, for coming on in in the middle of all your crazy hecticness. Thank you. uh, Best of luck with the show. Thank you very much. Curtain call. Well, that wraps up Volume 412. Again, if you're looking for more information on anything uh, you heard about in this episode, just go to broadwaybullet.com and click on the Volume 412 episode. Um, Normally, we do quite a bit of nymph things, but uh, for some reason... uh, they uh, didn't get out the word or something quite as much, or maybe because all the nymph shows sell out, they feel less inclined to go out and work hard to promote. But in either case, I haven't had as big of a deluge of shows calling in to do this as normal. I, uh, if you know, I take everybody in the nymph who wants to get on. So I'm not sure when the next episode on nymph will be. Um, but no matter what, we'd like to we got the NY It Awards episode coming up soon. And uh, we'll be back on the first Thursday of, of uh, October, no matter what. Maybe have a couple more Nymph shows in there. And um, and if we do get a bunch more before that, I will certainly be putting up an episode early. Um, anyway, thanks for uh, tuning in and hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. Once again, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo. The hair's went up on the back of my neck. When Dove's fashion audition come up, we are so ready and raring. So Jake Kowski says my name and I'm in the can. Actually, the Barfay thing comes from my whole life. People just going vulture, boggler. So it didn't take much though when we proposed. Um, Unpackage those things with the audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, 
if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.